0: Welcome to the Valleybrook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Parables. Jesus oftentimes used these short stories to teach people. Sometimes the parable opened people's eyes to the profound truth of God. Other times the parable was symbolic and challenged people to go deeper in their faith. But with every parable, Jesus wanted people to live out the reality of what they learned. This summer, we'll be studying some of the parables that Jesus used so we can discover and live out their truths in our lives. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website, www.valleybrook.cc, select contact us, and send us an email.
1: Well, today we have a special treat. Today uh, we have a guest speaker, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him. But first, just give you a, a greater context. Valley Brook is part of a movement of churches. It's it's a movement of churches that is worldwide. It's nationwide, and it's here in New England. It's called Converge, and the purpose of Converge, uh, bringing churches to work together, is to start new churches, to strengthen existing churches, and to send out workers and leaders to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world with those who don't know him. Uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Ponzani, uh, we just call him Tim, uh, he's uh, a personal friend, but he is our district executive minister. He oversees all the churches here in from uh, eastern New York all the way to uh, Maine in New England. And uh, he's a graduate of Gordon Conwell Seminary. He went to Ohio State University. He's married to Sharon, and they have two adult kids, Colin and Caitlin. And so, would you give him a warm Valley Brook welcome as he comes up to
2: speak? Oh, good morning. It's great to be at Valley Brook. Sharon and I have visited a number of times, and we feel that we indeed are partners in ministries, certainly extending back to my time at Valley Community Baptist Church. I served there for 14 years as the executive pastor, and really my responsibility there was to oversee uh, the staff team for Pastor Jay Abramson. Now, interestingly enough, Clark uses the word oversee, that I oversee churches. I look at it a little bit differently in our movement. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to walk alongside pastors and leaders to help them discover and explore what it is that God is calling you to be as a church as you expand your influence in the town of Granby and beyond. And so as we think about our movement of churches uh, before we get into scripture, Clark talked about the, the broader context of Converge, but think about this with me for a moment in the Northeast. Clark described the region that I'm responsible for, and part of my responsibility is to go around and visit with churches. And I'm doing that on most weekends uh, when I'm available. Um, Although uh, I I have probably overcommitted myself at some points during the summer, my wife can tell you about that. But But as we think about our movement of churches, there are parts of the Northeast that do not have a gospel presence. Can you imagine that? I met with one of the the, the leaders in the state of New Hampshire in the church movement up there that's really focusing on small towns. He counted there are 55 towns in New Hampshire that do not have a gospel presence that's in drivable distance, reasonable drivable distance for people. Now if you multiply that by all of the New England states and then New York and New Jersey that, that we have responsibility for, that number is much larger. And so there are few churches as vibrant as Valley Brook. So how might we partner together, as Clark said, to start new churches, to strengthen existing churches, and then to raise up men and women—not necessarily for vocational ministry—but a, a force of men and women committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with friends, family, co-workers, neighbors anyone in your sphere of influence. What a powerful force that would be if we all united together to accomplish not what our mission and vision is, but what God's command is, to share the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So as we think about our partnership together, I would encourage, one, that you would pray for me and Sharon as we embark on this new adventure. It's very different than the local church ministry that I experienced for the last almost 25 years. And they were out among and with our churches, and, and some of our churches are thriving, but many of our churches are struggling. And I don't want to see any of our churches, not one church, give up. But we want to see them strengthened and vibrant. I had the privilege of meeting with about a handful of leaders south of Boston yesterday. And I got to hear from four young men, I can say that now because I'm middle-aged, younger than me men, that are planting or revitalizing churches. And just to hear their passion and what God is doing in them and what they hope to see happen in the, either the two church plants and then the one church that's being revitalized. That's exciting work that we can join together. And so I'm hopeful that that as our ministry expands and grows, that you will choose to partner with me. You already are. You may not know this, but Clark and Dan are members of the board that that help give me guidance and oversight. And so not only are are they my good friends, but we get to co-labor together for the cause of Christ and how exciting that is. So as I think about our work together, and and the opportunity we have to serve together, there's there's a foundational effort that I believe every follower of Christ and every church needs to take part in, and that is prayer. And, And as I hear in the beginning of your service as Clark in this service and Cynthia in the first service talked about the opportunity for you to share your prayer requests, I want to affirm how important that is in the life of any congregation. Because as your hearts are joined together in prayer, God does an amazing thing. I'm not gonna give that away yet, because that's gonna come. But as we think about the, 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 the subject and the, the type of prayer that's found in our passage today, so I want you to be thinking about this. What is your posture, or a word I used, what is your comportment when you come to God in prayer? So hang on to that thought for a moment, and let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that, Father, you would communicate to us by your spirit what it is we are to learn this day from your word. So, Father, I pray that as we study it and hear it, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but we would be doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And it's really neat that you've been going through the parables of Jesus this summer. Simply put, a parable is this. It's a simple story that Jesus gives us to illustrate a truth, a moral truth, or a spiritual truth. And oftentimes, uh, when we look at the parables, sometimes the answer is not always easy to get to. That's why I'm simple. Hmm. But, but Jesus is using it as a real-life teaching uh, tool, and he uses real-life examples for his followers. And so as we look at the particular parable today, I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll unpack it and see what God has to say to us today as we apply it. And if you have your Bible or electronic device, let's turn to Luke chapter 18, and I'll give you a moment to get there before I read it. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and this parable is called the parable of the persistent widow, or you could do a subtext, the parable of the annoying widow. Okay, she's really not annoying. It seems that way. So let's read. Well, unlike some of Jesus' parables where you have to walk all the way through to kind of get his meaning, he gives us the meaning right up front. He says that they should always pray and not give up. There we go. Clark, sermon's over. Not yet. Because I think there's some things we need to look at and unpack to try to understand because Jesus uses some interesting phrases throughout this. He's telling the story but then he he makes some interesting comments, particularly towards the end of the parable. So we're gonna unpack this together, but but, but as we do that, I wanna do this almost like setting the stage of a play, because there are characters in this story that I think will be helpful to us to understand the context of, of who they are and what on earth they're doing. So the first character is the judge. Now, this is an interesting fact in, in the time that Jesus is teaching, and there are several types of judges in Israel at this point in time. Many of us are familiar with one type of judge, and, and the first type of judge, these are men who are part of what was called the greater Sanhedrin. The greater Sanhedrin. Now, this was the the ruling body that was responsible for the enforcement of the Jewish law over the whole of the nation and Jewish people, right? So the greater Sanhedrin. They had national responsibility, kind of like our Supreme Court, but it was mainly focused on the enforcement of the Jewish law. The greater Sanhedrin was the group that tried Jesus Christ before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, but we also have another group uh, just slightly under the greater Sanhedrin, common sense, the lesser Sanhedrin. Now, their responsibilities were somewhat similar, but they were responsible more regionally. So another way to think about this is like maybe the US Circuit Courts or the Court of Appeals. So they were responsible for the moral code, the Jewish law, uh, regionally in, in specific areas. And then you had a third type of judge. And that's the judge that we're talking about here. This is a judge probably more akin to what we would call a justice of the peace. They were appointed by the Romans. And how well loved were the Romans? Not very. So these were appointed by the Romans to handle various civil cases that were brought before them. And so it was like a local magistrate or as I said, a justice of the peace. Now, so that's the type of judge. But Jesus uses some very interesting language as he describes this judge. And I'm going to bring that back out. So he says this, Jesus says, This judge neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And what Jesus is in effect saying, that this man willfully and explicitly ignored the first and second of the great commandments, which are, love God and love your neighbor. Let me ask you a question. Would you like to go to this judge? Do you think you would get justice if you went to this kind of judge who neither feared God nor even cared one whit about you? I don't think so. Jesus is painting a picture of this, this person, this judge who has great authority yet was absolutely despicable, someone completely devoid of any human decency or compassion. Now, I want to be careful how much I read into the passage, but I have to imagine this is probably also a judge who was on the take. So if he was despicable, the way he got, you got your case heard was you probably had to pay him money. That's how you got justice. And so again, how fair is that? So one commentator describes this judge with this definition. They were the worst of all notoriously lacking in both morals and scruples. They were paid large salaries out of the temple treasury. Isn't that interesting? The Romans appointed them, yet they had to be paid out of the temple treasury. They were typically Gentiles or unbelievers. The Jews generally regarded them the same as they regarded tax collectors, with utter disdain and contempt. In Aramaic, their title was Prohibition Judges. And it's interesting because if you simply change one character in Aramaic, the word prohibition becomes robber. They were robber judges. Isn't that interesting? So again, that's one character. So then we have the next character, and this is the widow. Now interestingly enough in this passage, the widow is not described by her character. She's only described by her actions and her words. And it's this, she comes in and her plea for justice. Grant me justice against my adversary. But basically, that's it. That's all that, that we know and that she keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. Can you imagine that? Have you ever been in a situation where someone keeps coming to you, coming back with the same story, the same request, the same idea, you know what a squeaky wheel is? Have you ever been confronted with a squeaky wheel? I have. How annoying is that? And often what happens is that it affects how we think about that person. And and because of the person coming back and back and back, we don't often even want to think about how can we help that person? Because what often is presenting is not often the issue at all. So hold that onto that thought for a moment. This is not all that we can learn about this widow, even though this passage doesn't describe it. See, she's not just any widow. She is a widow without any male relative. No son, no nephew, no male cousin, no uncle, no relative at all. How do we know that? Well, we would know that because any self-respecting woman in this era, this time, wouldn't be caught dead in a court, especially this kind of court. She had no other way. This is how desperate she was. It also indicates how poor she was because if she had any money whatsoever, she would have hired someone to represent her. She had no advocate whatsoever but then there's one more character or should I say group of characters that we need to point out because as Jesus is teaching he's not only teaching his disciples he's teaching those who happen to be listening around him and we can learn this from some earlier passages in the book of Luke there were also Jewish leaders who would have been on the fringes and listening to him this message was for them as well the people. Well, how do we infer this? Because in in various parts of Scripture, God has a lot to say about the poor and widows and how, as believers or believing people, we are to take care of the widow, the orphan, and those who are less fortunate than us. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This parable describes how God-fearing Jews were supposed to provide for the poor. And as I said, likewise, it was the same for widows. And here are a few other passages for us to consider. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow. What an indictment. Isaiah chapter 1. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. Let me just pause here for a moment. In our culture today in the West, we have been given much. And and I would be remiss if I didn't point out to all of us, and I'm pointing the finger at me, just as much as this room, that we have to consider how much we've been given, how much God has blessed us, and what are we doing with that? How are we using it to bless those, to care for those, to to meet the needs of those who are less fortunate, whether it's the orphan, whether it is the widow, whether it is just surely the poor people? We have all of that represented in our culture. And so these are just a handful of passages that talk about how, as God's heart is for the poor, and how we are to, as followers of Christ, be mindful, not just mindful of their state, but actually doing something about it, whether as individuals or as an institution. Okay, now let's step back into the scripture. Again, we have our characters. We have the judge, who is a vile character, reprehensible. We have the widow, who represents the lowest class of people in society. And then we have the people who, according to Scripture, should have been taking care of the widow all along. So there really wasn't, shouldn't have been a need, yet there was. Okay, the people, now the case. So what's the case? We actually don't know what the case is. We can speculate, but that's not the message of what the case actually is. What we do know that the widow is coming to seek justice. We don't quite know even how long it's been going on, but we know that it's been going on long enough that the judge expresses his just irritation. Um, and it's interesting here because the, literally the language used, particularly in the ESV, it actually says this, she beat him down. She's beating me down. In Greek, the language actually gives the connotation that she's giving him a black eye. Now, I don't think she actually punched the guy and gave him a black eye. But again, the, the, the idea is that she's just such an irritant. Can you imagine this? The judge is sitting at a table or wherever he's sitting, and in case after case after case, oh, there she is again next day. She's back. Oh, come on. She's back? You've got to be kidding me. What am I going to do about this? So finally, he gets so worn down and so frustrated by her constant pounding on him that he decides to grant her justice. Now, remember, it's not out of the goodness of his heart. It's probably more out of selfish interest because he was so irritated with her. I just want this irritant to go away. Do you have that attitude sometime? I just want this irritating person to go away. And I must confess that happens to me sometimes. And this has really given me pause into saying, how do I treat people that are coming with a real felt-need issue that's presenting in a way that's off-putting? So sometimes we have to peel that back. Remember, we have to peel back the issue that's off-putting to begin to understand what the heart issue is. I think that's part of the lesson here. So the judge finally grants justice, and the woman goes away presumably satisfied. But then it comes to the part that's just very interesting in some of the questions that Jesus ends this passage with. Remember at the beginning, he says, gives us the answer, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then the story of the widow He then ends the passage with this. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so while this passage is indeed focused on prayer, it's focused on a particular kind of prayer. In the previous chapter of Luke, chapter 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the coming of his kingdom at the end of time and the terrible judgment that will be visited upon the wicked. And the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about in this passage is what's called a prayer of vindication. Now, what does vindication mean? Vindication simply means being proven right or justified. And Jesus is making the point that while his disciples are awaiting his return, especially as the world seems to grow more wicked, he wants his people to keep praying and not lose heart. Now, I want to I step into this a little bit because <clears throat> how many here think the world is getting better and better? Right? How many think it's getting worse and worse? And that's hard. That's a hard thing to fathom, especially as we think about raising our kids in a world that is hard. And I don't want us to be, be uh, discouraged, but I think that's a message for us is just keep praying. Keep praying together. Keep praying with your kids. And I think especially in our culture where it is antithetical and antagonistic to the message of the gospel, it's becoming harder and harder for those who follow Christ to actually stand up for their faith in the public space. So how do we do that? How do we comport ourselves as we attempt to follow Christ and follow his commands and witness for him in a world that sometimes we wonder, does it even want to hear the message of the gospel? And let me take it a little bit further. Because I know that there are those, particularly in in the Western context, that is becoming more and more pervasive where we can be discriminated against in the marketplace and other places for the cause of Christ. I know of cases where people are not getting promotions because they have made a stand on a particular issue. Now, at least in this country, praise God, we, we are not losing our lives for the cause of Christ as in other countries, because there are countries around the world to be a Christ follower, if that became publicly known, you might lose your life. We haven't experienced that yet in this country. But how might we experience unjust behavior being directed at us in this country? Because we want justice, we want to be vindicated, we want to be proven right. And so I think that part of this is that, that Jesus is wanting us to not lose heart because God does hear. But sometimes the hard part, and we'll get to this in a moment in a little more detail, is that, that God may not always vindicate us in this life. And that's where we need the body of Christ. We need the encouragement of one another, husband and wife, small group, places where we gather together. We need to to. to encourage one another, to affirm one another, to build one another up so that we can withstand the buffeting of life because that does happen. God is teaching us or Jesus is teaching us that we are to be like the persistent widow who is caught up in unjust circumstances because there are times when we are subject to unjust actions now, the other piece here is that, that the great news, hallelujah, God is not like the unjust judge you know, who didn't love God or love people. God that we serve is caring, he's gracious, he's attentive, and he's at work for our good. And we ought to cry out to him day and night. And vindication is indeed something that we can desire, especially if we find ourselves being mistreated and in unjust circumstances. But I want to point out and go back to uh, a book of Psalms because oftentimes we can go to Psalms when we're struggling with prayer or we just need guidance on what to do about prayer. Let's go back to the book of Psalms. And it's a great prayer book. And I want to go to the particularly Psalm 26. I want to read a couple of verses from that Psalm. And this is a Psalm of vindication. And this is what David says Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love. Is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Now it's interesting here because David only laments or makes this prayer of vindication using one word. And then he goes on to describe what is the result of his walking daily with God. Vindicate me! But God, let me reflect back to you how I walk with you each and every day. And I think this is an important lesson for us to know because it talks to us about what our posture should be as we come to God in prayer. And I'm going to pause here for a moment because as a congregation, again, as I mentioned, one of the most important things to do is pray. But also, it's why we come together for worship. It's why you gather here on a weekend in a morning. Because one of the awesome things, you have an awesome worship team. And when you come together and you're led to give God praise, what does that do? It takes the attention. I'll I'll speak to me. I won't speak to you. It takes the attention off me of what my issues are, what my concerns are, what my wants are, what my needs are, what my frustrations are, all of the stuff that's so me-centered. And it does what? It lifts us up. Every one of the, the pieces that Dan and the team did this morning Had the effect of raising our attention on the Almighty God. So I want to think about this for a minute. Think about this and just keep this in your mind as we continue. What is your posture as you enter into God's presence? So again, David talks a lot about this, and he goes on in this psalm to talk about this. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, verse 8. I love the habitation of your house. This describes David's vibrant worship life. And then he finishes this psalm with, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground, and in the great assembly I will bless the Lord. He says, vindicate me one time. And then spends the rest of this psalm talking about how he walks with God, or the result of how he walks with God. And that's vital as we think about our relationship with God. Oftentimes, and it's okay, we we only come to God when we need something. At least it's a start. But I'd like us to think about something different, that we approach God first in other ways, that we praise him and we thank him for who he is We confess our shortcomings before him because we acknowledge that he is God, that he is awesome, that he is mighty, and we are not. And that we desperately need him in our lives. The Hebrew terms behind heart and mind that that David uses in this psalm uh, connote this. In the Hebrew mind, the kidneys or the innards were the organs driving our emotions and motives and the heart drives our thinking and will. David was, in effect, saying, look at my heart and mind with your all-penetrating eyes and see that I belong to you in the totality of my being. And then he's asking this, are my motives and are my actions pure? So as I'm coming to you and saying, vindicate me, do I have a pure heart? Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. When we pray, it is not a a carte blanche to ask God for whatever we want. That's the emphasis, whatever we want. Nor does it mean we're to come to God whining. Do we ever come to God whining? I confess I have done that. God, I don't like this. Oh, how, how often do we whine to God? But okay, so what, is this, what does this all mean to us practically? I want to reassure you, point number one, God does want to hear our prayers. Do you have a problem? Do you have a need? Do you have a concern? God is interested in our prayers because he's interested in us. No other religion on the face of this planet has a divine being who actually cares and is interested in his people. Most of the other deities that are worshipped around the globe are vindictive, they punish. But we have a loving God, a just God, a righteous God, a caring God, a God who desperately wants to have a relationship with us. That's why he sent his son. The however is that as we approach God, we must be mindful of how we approach him, what our requests are and what our posture is. So one, God wants to hear our prayers. Two, God is able to answer our prayers, whatever they are. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But the however here is that God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want him to. It may be yes, no, not yet. Or the answer may be something that we've never expected. We might be surprised in a good way. We might be surprised otherwise. Because sometimes the request that we bring, God, give me a new car. That may not be the right posture. <clears throat> three, three, God wants our heart to be in the right place with him when we cry out to him. We can't come to God and say, God, take care of my problem or take care of my enemies, but don't look at my sin. I'm I'm not gonna... Hebrews, or excuse me, James, says something very pointed about this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what's the hope for us? What is hope when we desperately need God to hear and answer our prayers? So when we come together in worship, which includes songs and prayers and the spoken word, this is what I call an aligning activity. The other thing I'd like to say is that when we gather together as the people of God on a Sunday morning, This should be the culmination of that which is happening all throughout the week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are all opportunities for us to be spending time with God. What a novel thought, individually, you get to spend time with God, the God of the universe. What does that look like? And so are we preparing ourselves by the spending with God throughout the week for when we come together in this joyous celebration of worship, that's number one, as we think about our hearts being right with God. The second point I want to talk about here is, is, um, imagine with me if the Queen of England were standing on the platform, I would not be on the platform with her, but if she were standing on the platform right here, what would you be doing? Would you have some sort of maybe awe or reverence for a fallible human being just because she holds the title of the Queen of England? Now, we don't see God visibly standing with us. How much more should we be in awe and reverence when we enter His presence? I should be laying flat on my face right now. I won't say anything about you, but I know what I should be doing. That's how we should comport ourselves, whether it is in our private devotions or our public time together. That now do I'm saying lay flat on your face? No. We might need to do that from time to time. And I can think of times when I need to do that. Because what that does in our posture, we're saying that he is God and we are not. He is holy and we are not. He is righteous and he is not. And you can fill in all the adjectives and attributes that he is, that we are not. But yet, because of what he has done for us, we can be made righteous. We can be made holy. It's a lifelong process. We can be made right. And ultimately, we can be vindicated in his sight. I find that when my heart is aligned with God's heart, my prayers look different, they sound different. Let me tell you this story, for the last 14 years I served as executive pastor at Valley, Big Valley as some of you call it, in Avon. My responsibility was to lead the staff team And we used to have prayer time separate from staff meeting. And uh, again, I know your staff prays for you, and so that's what we would do, we'd pray through the prayer cards. So we'd have about two people show up, and that was really frustrating for me because I wanted all of our staff to come, but uh, I wish they'd come. So what did I do? I actually brought prayer time to staff meeting. So we had a two-hour staff meeting every Tuesday, 10 to noon, without fail. So I decided, let's bring prayer time to staff meeting. And then I stressed, well, wait a minute, if we bring prayer to, how am I going to get everything done? Task guy, have a list, agenda. But God did an interesting thing. So no matter how long we prayed, whether it was 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, sometimes even an hour and a half, we didn't extend the staff meeting. But what God did was, When I actually then looked at the agenda, that agenda got changed. Maybe we would address it, but more often than not, it was meaningless because those are the things I wanted to talk about. They weren't necessarily the things that God wanted us to talk about. So that's an example that as we come with the right posture and the right attitude and we worship together and align our hearts through song and prayer and the spoken word and whatever that looks like in your private devotions, that we are then better equipped and better in a better position to bring our requests to God. Because sometimes what was troubling us and what we really wanted God to hear from us wasn't so important anymore. So as we think about this, what is our posture? What does our heart look like? And then finally, and this is the great hope, God gives us grace that brings about redemption and ultimate vindication because it's that grace that we need to endure. When when answers don't go our way, when in this life, we don't always get the full vindication or the full justification for our position that we're looking for. Because we do live in a fallen world. Things are getting worse, not better. Jim Simbla says it this way. That evening when I was at my lowest, confounded by obstacles, bewildered by the darkness that surrounded us, unable even to continue preaching, Now, I have to imagine whether you are in Jim's circumstances or there might be other circumstances that you're in, you've probably been in that that situation. But here's what he says. I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness, in fact makes room for his power. And I do think that is hard for us. I know it's hard for me. I don't know if it's a guy thing, but it's hard for me to admit I'm wrong. It's hard for me to admit I have a weakness. However, just talk to my wife. She'll she'll help you. Actually, she helps me. (laughs) But do we humbly come, do we admit that we need God, that we are powerless without him? So what I'd like us to do right now, if you'd bow your heads with me, please, as I bring the service to a close. I want you to do some reflection. What does your prayer life look like? What things do you bring before God? What do your prayers sound like? Do you even have a regular prayer time? Let's take a few minutes and reflect. Some of you may need to take a little bit longer to reflect, and and I want to encourage you to do that as 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 you go away from the service today. But here's here's an action step I'd like you to take beyond reflection. Particularly if you don't have a regular prayer time, if you're not praying to God at all, start. (laughs) Easy, start. It could be for a few minutes a day, a couple times a week. Because sometimes it's hard to jump in, and you've probably tried this before, is that I'm going to do devotions every day of the week. And because it's not yet a habit, it's hard to break into that. So start. Secondly, tell someone about it. Because what hel- helps us as followers of Christ, we need the one another's in our lives, whether it's a, a spouse or a best friend, someone who knows us and knows Jesus, that can help encourage us to say, hey, how's it going, Clark? How's, it, how's, your, how's your regular time with God? I need that. So start and tell someone about it. And look for that rich time that comes as you spend with God in prayer and in his word. Because I guarantee you, the more you do that, the more your heart aligns. Now, it's actually God's word that guarantees it, not Tim Ponzani. So let's commit to do that together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the the specific stories that you give us to help us unpack the richness of the text. And so, God, I pray for us as a people that you would help us take the the steps that you want us to take on a daily basis so that we are communing, that we're having that conversation with you, so that as your people, we are growing and developing in Christ-likeness to be able to share the good news of the gospel to those that desperately need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray, expecting that God will hear and that God will answer. Blessings.
1: Thank you, Tim. So as we bring this uh, service to a close, I want you to spend some time reflecting on what Tim has shared with you. And don't hesitate to pray. Pursue that conversation with God. Speaking of prayer, if God has brought something into your life that you need somebody to pray with, there will be prayer team members up here in just a few moments at the conclusion of our service. We hope that you'll come up and uh, meet with them. And if you want to connect with Tim, he'll be here briefly. But I really want to encourage you to, to spend some time talking about this with others. When you go out in the cafe, connect and and uh, share with Uh, one another what God spoke to you during this time. Now let me close with a final blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.